have included in your handout for this evening another copy of the prosodic analysis of that lament, just for your reference. Uh, We did talk about it in terms of structure last week. And then I want to go on to uh, the narrative in 2 Samuel 2. Let's begin with prayer, shall we? Our Father, you have folded us into the kingdom of heaven through the person and work of your only begotten, dearly beloved Son. And by the shedding abroad of his Spirit, your Holy Spirit, in our hearts. That sweet provision of your grace, the very down payment of the world to come, a righteousness which is of the righteousness of God, such a righteousness to cover over our unrighteousness, a righteousness from the life of your Son, Jesus, a life of perfect obedience to your law. And a full covering for the guilt of our transgression, an infinite mercy to us whose sins deserve infinite punishment. Recovering from the cross of the Lord Jesus. And a wonderfully sweet victory in his vindication, indeed his justification by resurrection, declared right with God before your face that we who are included in him are declared right with God by his righteous life and his atoning death and his victorious resurrection. These are the treasures of the grace of your heavenly kingdom. They are the treasures of the gift of the eschatological David, our King, our dear Savior, our precious Lord. Now encourage us as we look at the David of old and realize that you have brought to us a far better King and an everlasting kingdom. In the name of Jesus, we ask it. Amen. David's poetic lament in chapter 1 of Second Samuel, verses 19 to 27, is preceded by a prose introduction, verses 17 to 18. That introduction tells us the author, David, and the genre of his poem. 
This is not a hallelujah poem, as Psalms 146 to 150 are, for example. It is not a poem of confession, as Psalm 51 is, for example. It is not aphoristic poetry, as the book of Proverbs is. Nor is it the poetry of theodicy, as the book of Job is. Theodicy, the righteousness of God in the suffering of man. Or the problem of pain, as C.S. Lewis puts it in his very famous book. Or as my professor and teacher John Gerstner said, it's not the problem of pain, it's the problem of health. We don't deserve one minute without pain. It is not the poetry of the emptiness and vanity of the meaninglessness of life, a la Ecclesiastes. Nor is David's poem prophetic poetry. Rather, the term for lament here signifies a dirge a funeral lament, a poem expressing a profound sense of loss accompanied by mourning and weeping, as verse 12 of this first chapter indicates. The dead ones, gone now, bring to mind their lives, and the emotions welling up because of their absence. David grieves for his lost friends. The genre of David's poem is a formal lament. The object of David's poem is not only the remembrance of Saul and Jonathan, but the memorial verse which the children of Israel will sing. And the record of this poetic lamentation is found not only here in 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 1, 2 Samuel 1 rather, but in the book of Yashar. The mysterious book of Yashar is mentioned in only one other place in scripture, Joshua chapter 10 verse 13 where we learn that the book of Yashar contained yet another poem, Joshua's poetic invocation that the sun and the moon stand still, stand still at Gabeon and Aijalon. Whatever else was in this book, these two songs, the song of Joshua at Gabeon, and the song of David at Ziklag were written in it. That David calls his song the song of the bow, as the New American Standard reads in verse 18. The song of the bow suggests that the lament recalls the bow of Jonathan, which is noted in the poem at verse 22. The very same Hebrew word for bow appears in both places. 
The poem or dirge proper begins with a riddle. The Hebrew word zevi, variously translated beauty or honor, your beauty or the beauty or your honor or the honor, O Israel, who or what this is must await a solution derived from the structure of the poem. We are immediately struck by the second line of the Bicola in verse 19, How have the mighty fallen? Which echoes and re-echoes through the lament as a refrain. But you will notice what David does as he repeats the refrain. He adds something more each time. Verse 25, how have the mighty fallen? to which he adds, in the midst of battle. Verse 27, how have the mighty fallen, to which he adds, and the weapons of war perished. The loss of mighty Saul and Jonathan occurs on the battlefield, a battlefield on which their weapons were stripped, confiscated, and perished, as First Samuel 31, verse 9 indicates. David laments that loss. The first colon of verse 20, tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, is patterned on our what is A and what is more than A, B. Paradigm. What is A? Tell it not in Gath. Three words in the Hebrew text. And what is more than A? B. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Four words in the Hebrew text. Adding the word streets to Ashkelon expands the parallel. So we ask, why does David want no celebration in gas? Why does he want no declaration in gas? Because of his association with Achish, king of Gath. He wants no gloating from the king whom he intended to double-cross. Why Ashkelon and not one of the other three cities of the Philistine Pentapolis? The five cities of the Pentapolis listed in 1 Samuel 6, 17. The other three, Ashdod, Gaza, and Ekron, as well as Gath and Ashkelon. Why Ashkelon? Let me suggest that it may be on account of Ashkelon being a seaport, a coastal city right on the Mediterranean. The other four cities of the Pentapolis are landlocked. They're surrounded by geographical territory. 
The streets of Ashkelon would spread this defeat to the world beyond the Philistine coast as Philistine ships of trade traveled the Mediterranean basin. David wants no gloating in Philistia or beyond. We have already, namely last week, pointed out the expansive symmetry of the second colon in verse 20. The women of the Philistines, those who are the traditional band of mourners, these women of the uncircumcised will not mourn, but exalt. The contrast with the daughters of Israel in verse 24, who do weep, is emphatic. David wants no celebration by the enemies of Israel. This is a time to honor Saul and Jonathan with national weeping and mourning by those who have that role in the culture, namely daughters of Israel. For Israel's mighty ones have fallen in death. David now moves to the death scene. The mountains of Gilboa in verse 21. You will notice the significance of the imagery as Saul's shield in the second colon of that verse is unanointed with oil. So the mountains of Gilboa are to be unanointed with dew or rain. As Saul's shield lays desolate and barren, so the place where Saul and his shield fell are to memorialize him with desolation and barrenness. The oil of anointing here is ironically reminiscent of the oil of anointing poured over Saul's head by Samuel in 1 Samuel 10.1. The abandonment of anointing is an unmessiahing of Saul. Mashiach, the Hebrew word for Messiah, being the Hebrew term for anointing. Here is the only place in David's lament where he alludes to the Lord's rejection of Saul as the anointed of the Lord. Do even the mountains of Gilboa in their unbedewed, unmoistened state reflect the final status of the dead Saul, unanointed? Hmm. The doubling of the word shield in verse 21 leads to the expansion upon weaponry, which follows in verse 22, where Jonathan's bow and Saul's sword are mentioned. Falkelman's suggestion that the word translated from here, from the blood, from the fat, Falkelman's suggestion that the word from is better translated with makes eminent sense in the context. Note, 
Note that Saul's sword did not return empty, nor did Jonathan's bow turn back without effect. Hence, with what effect was Jonathan's bow launched, and with what was Saul's sword full, not empty, with the blood of the slain, with the fat of the mighty. The better translation is with, not from, as the context clearly indicates. They fought to the death and slew the enemy with their weapons until overcome. The double negatives here, not turn back, not return empty, are positive accolades. They are not negative allusions as the double negatives in verse 21. David is commending them and their weaponry. Notice once again, as we pointed out last week, the chiastic order of the names Jonathan and Saul in verses 22 and 23. They are not parted. Even in death, they remain a perfect mirror reflection of son and father, father and son. In fact, the first line of verse 23, Saul and Jonathan, is the middle line of this entire poem. Nine lines of Hebrew above that line and nine lines of Hebrew below that line. Perfect symmetry. Here is David's central focus to feature both Saul and Jonathan in a lament of sorrow and a dirge of commendation. David, as a king in honor, will honor the office of the man who even attempted to kill him. He will honor his office. This is generous, long-suffering indeed. How gracious David is as the king in his kingdom. But the word death, which binds Jonathan and Saul, draws David into the circle of sorrow for their loss. This sobering word touches David in his king and in the son of his king. And he responds not with gloating exultation, as the Philistines may but with grief and lamentation. The royal bearing of this Davidic king is to weep, to weep over death, especially death which touches those whom he honors and loves. David as king can be touched, touched with the tears and sorrow of death. It is a royal empathy 
a kingly sympathy. The eschatological king, too, will weep over death, especially death which touches one whom he honors and loves. Jesus wept. Verse 24 continues the honor David accords Saul, how he brought prosperity, even luxury, to the daughters of Israel. And it is true. Saul did bring a measure of respite from repeated enemy incursions of Israel, a respite which would augur stability of economy and even a measure of prosperity. But the main thrust of this verse is the contrast with the daughters of the Philistines in verse 20. Israel's female troop of mourners weeps while Philistia's exalts. The impropriety of the one starkly contrasted with the propriety of the other. The refrain of verse 25 continues and expands the opening tricolon of the lament in verse 19. This verse, you will notice, also duplicates the term high places in verse 19. The identification of Jonathan here as one slain on the high places is an initial clue to the identity of the mysterious Zevi in verse 19. Is the beauty or honor of Israel slain on the high places the Jonathan slain on the high places. Verse 26 seems to confirm the identification by expanding upon Jonathan with an encomium of affection. Keep in mind that in a warrior culture, in a warrior culture, the bond between male warriors is often expressed in terms of love and pleasantness. This is an expression of the deep esprit de corps, which is found in all military circles. There is nothing unseemly or untoward in it of itself. It is the mutual realization of an emotional bond which folds in those facing the imminent prospect of death. Jonathan's death has released in David those emotions of love for a brother in arms, a man beloved as his loyal friend and comrade, a love more wonderful because it was a very different kind of love, a love more wonderful than the love of women. It is the love of David for Jonathan and Jonathan for David, which draws David's lament to a close. The inclusio 
of verse 27. The inclusio of verse 27 draws the poet's frame around this poignant dirge of honor and affection. Affection especially for the dead Jonathan, as the face-to-face pronouns in verse 26 indicate. Me, you, you see, face-to-face, Jonathan and David, me and you, you and me. Thus, it is Jonathan who is first, and it is Jonathan who is last in this poem. He is the beauty or honor of Israel in verse 19. The one beloved of David the king in verse 26. With the Old Testament, John the Baptist laid down in the dust of death. A new day dawns for the king whose life is bundled with the living God. At the conclusion of David's lament, we stand at the portal of the era of the shepherd king of the people of God. Will the protological David bring in the eschatological kingdom of heaven, or do we look for another? Second Samuel 2 to 1 Kings 2, will answer that question. Last week, Scott raised the question of whether 2 Samuel 1 forms a hinge to the David narrative. Let's think about that question for a moment. We have turned a corner in our narrator's dramatic story even a turning point marked by a literary shift from prose narrative genre to elegiac poetic genre. Our author arrests our attention by inserting a poetic expression crafted by his principal character. Does this poetic lament form the pivot point or hinge point of the biography of David? Does the career of David swing upon the linchpin of this elegiac lament? I have my doubts. And this is my explanation. Our narrator has concluded the plot narrative of the life of Saul his rise, his climactic rebellion against God, his fall spiraling downward, and the denouement of his story in death. The life of Saul is behind us, behind David, with the record of his death and his funeral dirge. We have reached not a pivot or hinge point At 2 Samuel 1, we have instead reached yet one more of our narrator's transitions, a transition which leaves David completely in the spotlight of the ongoing narrative. 
closure upon the life of Saul does not bring a folding back of the life of David. David's life continues to unfold in an ongoing drama, an ongoing drama which continues to spiral upwards towards Jerusalem, towards the relocation of the tabernacle, towards the unity of the twelve tribes of Israel. David has not yet reached the climax of his own story. Not yet. Thus, his poetic lament is yet one more element in our narrator's characterization of the king-elect of the Lord, a lament which poignantly features sadly features one dead at his own hand while the one intoning the lamentation lives his life bundled up in the hand of God. David has reached a plateau in his narrative drama, but he has not yet reached the pivotal climax of his own story. That hinge point is yet in front of us. Second Samuel 2.1 relaunches the continuing upwardly spiraling saga of David, messianic king of Israel. I'll pause here for any questions or comments you may have on what we have covered so far. Hearing no objections, I will move on. Before we move on to chapter 2, while we still have poetic genre in mind, I would like to share some tentative remarks about some other poems. Beginning with the first poem our author includes in his Samuel Corpus. In 1 Samuel 2, we have another remarkable poem, one which arises from the soul of a woman, a woman filled with great emotion. David's great emotion here at the beginning of 2 Samuel is expressed poetically. Hannah's great emotion at the beginning of 1 Samuel is expressed poetically. One poem is occasioned by death. The other is occasioned by the gift of life, the life of a little boy child. The barren one gives birth, she sings in 1 Samuel 2.5. The life of a boy child and a hymn, a hymn which she sings extolling God's salvation in history. I rejoice in thy salvation. First Samuel 2 verse 1. Hannah exalts 
that there is no one like our God, 1 Samuel 2.2, and proclaims that God the Lord will strengthen his king, 1 Samuel 2.10. In fact, she declares, the Lord will exalt his Messiah, his anointed one, 1 Samuel 2.10. From her conscious experience of the power of God within her, Hannah passes to the power of God in salvation and his power in raising up his messianic king. How wonderfully and poignantly she moves, moves from God's almighty power in bringing life from her barren, yea, dead womb to God's bringing salvation and exalting his messianic king also by his almighty power. He lifts up and exalts the anointed king in his strength, even as he lifts up the barren one who gives birth. And he brings low and lays down the proud and the arrogant, even as the mother of the many languishes. Hannah's poem anticipates the biography of Saul and David, even as it recapitulates her own biography and that of Penina, her rival, the one brought low, the other raised up by the Lord. Hannah's song sets the tone of the life of Saul and David, even as it bears the tone of her own life. Poetic emotion and the narrative drama of a life in union with the Lord Almighty, the Lord God of my salvation. She understands. And David's poem of lamentation David's poem sets the tone for his life without Saul. It is a poem bearing the tone of honor, respect, affection, even praise for a man who attempted to murder him. In death, David does not recriminate the Lord's anointed, even as in life, he would not stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. This King David is magnanimous, honoring the office and role even of his most bitter antagonist. He will no more gloat over Saul's death then he will be fawningly flattered with Saul's crown and arm bracelet from the hand of a treacherous Amalekite. David unleashes his feelings, his feelings of emotion, 
with a poetic dirge for his former king and his beloved friend. Yet David will wax poetic once more in the book of Samuel, in 2 Samuel 22 and 23. There he will hymn a song of God's salvation. David's poetic expression now expanded by his experience, his experience of God's salvation. God, my rock, 2 Samuel 22, verse 3. The feelings, the emotions of the saved heart, singing of the salvation of his heart. It is the poetic genre which reveals the depths of the feelings of the heart, feelings of the heart in 2 Samuel 22 and 23 in response to God's saving acts of grace in history, in David's personal history. But one more poem remains to be mentioned. It is the poem from the heart of another woman, a woman rejoicing in God's salvation as her empty womb is filled, filled with life by the almighty power of God. My soul doth magnify the Lord, sings Mary of Nazareth, Luke 1, 46. And how does she express the wonderful power of the Lord which has come to her? He has exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry, Luke 1, 52 and 53. But he has scattered the proud and the rich he has sent empty away. Luke 1, 51 and 53. Mary's Magnificat echoes Hannah's poetic song, song answering song. Over the course of a thousand years, a magnificent celebration of the grace of salvation and the longing expectation of the humbling of the proud and the exaltation of the lowly. Each of these poems marks a transition. Each of these four poems marks a redemptive historical transition. Hannah's song appears at the portal of transition from theocracy to monarchy. The history of redemption unfolds progressively, successively, continuously, leaving one era behind as the better era dawns. David's song of lament appears at the portal of transition from Saul's kingship to his own shepherd kingship. 
The history of redemption once more unfolds progressively, successively, continuously, leaving one era behind as the better era dawns. David's song of the Lord's salvation appears at the portal of the transition from David's kingship to Solomon's kingship. The history of redemption unfolds once more progressively, successively, continuously, leaving one era behind as the better era dawns. And Mary's song, her Magnificat, the Lord's salvation appears at the portal of transition from earthly kingship to the appearance of the kingdom of heaven. The history of redemption unfolds once and for all. Once and for all in Luke chapter 1, leaving one era behind as the better era dawns. Are we not invited into the emotions of the span of this redemptive historical poetry, drawn into the feelings of exaltation for the Lord's almighty salvation by grace? Are we not stirred, moved, folded into the emotions, the deep feelings of experiencing the transitions from the former eras which have passed away to the better eras which succeed, succeed to the fullness of time and the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven with the inbreaking of the eschatological David, the Son of God, who is the almighty, ever gracious Savior, the anointed of the Lord, Messiah in perpetuity, brought low on a cross, but raised up and exalted to the right hand of glory. Are we not moved and stirred in our emotions by such gracious drama? Or are we stone dead, unmoved by poetic depths? Such drama, poetically felt, hymned, and recorded such depth of emotion drives us, drives us to the fullness of the history of redemption, drives us to Jesus, the Savior of Hannah, the Savior of David, the Savior of Solomon, the Savior of Mary, the gracious Savior of his beloved sons and daughters. As the poetry, even of the Old Testament, not drive us to Jesus.
Second Samuel 2 begins with a structuring device which subdivides a larger narrative unit into three smaller subunits. Now that structuring device is actually a refrain that you will find in verse 4, verse 7, and verse 11. You will notice the phrase, King over the house of Judah. That phrase ends the section in verse 4, so that 1 to 4 is a subunit. It ends verse 7, so that verses 5 to 7 are a subunit. And it ends verse 11, so that 8 to 11 are a subunit. But verses 1 to 11 are a larger narrative unit in their own right. And I'll comment later on about the broader structure of the 11 verses. But notice that we have smaller narrative units inside the larger drama. Now we begin with the question, where is David when this chapter opens? Anyone, where is he? What location? No, he is not in Hebron yet. He is in Ziklag. That's correct. He is where he has returned after the Amalekites have been routed and he has rescued the families, uh, wives and children of his uh, loyal men. And here at the opening of the second chapter, we have... David stepping out onto the stage of redemptive history unimpeded and uncontested. Saul is dead. David now is the open, focal character of the ongoing drama. Now, the inauguration of a new and better monarchical era is signaled by the Lord's anointed heart, David, and the Lord's outspoken word, God himself speaking or revealing himself to David. So we have a theocentric dialogue, a theocentric dialogue, God-centered dialogue at the inauguration of this new unfolding Davidic era. And that dialogue between God and David is profound as well as proleptic. Now, this is not the first time that we have observed David seeking the Lord or inquiring after the Lord out of his personal union with God, his personal relationship, his intimate familiarity with God. In 1 Samuel 23, verses 9 and following, you remember that he sought the Lord or inquired of the Lord 
before he went up to Keilah. And again, in 1 Samuel 30, verses 7 and following, before he went down to Ziklag, he inquired of the Lord. So he is seeking the Lord again, as is his custom only here. He is seeking the Lord at the outset of his own unfettered and uncontested kingship. Notice in that first verse, the reciprocity, the equal reciprocity. How many times does David speak? Twice. How many times does God speak? Twice. Equal reciprocity. This is a relationship of reciprocal recognition of God and his servant, servant and his God. Contrast. Contrast verse 1 with verse 8. Is there any theocentric dialogue in the ascension as accession of Ishbosheth? No, there is not. Notice the narrator's juxtaposition of the contrast. God is at the center of the elevation of David. He has been since his anointing in 1 Samuel 16, but here our narrator once again juxtaposes him with one who would contest his ascension to becoming the sole king of Israel. All right, in verse 1, God says to David to go to Hebron. Why Hebron? Margaret, you have a smile on your face? No, she wipes a smile off her face, okay? Why Hebron? Why does David go up to Hebron? It is the ancestral home of the Hebrews who settled in Hebron. Who was the first Hebrew to settle in Hebron? Abraham, correct. It was his home. And so David goes up to Hebron in order to identify himself with the ancestral and patriarchal history of Israel. Also, notice from your map, the small map on the top of the two that you have, notice the location of Hebron. Geographically, it is in the tribe or the province of Judah, and it is almost dead center in that tribal territory. It is the central city of the tribe of Judah. Jerusalem is not. And it is high and elevated. It is, in fact, the highest city in Israel. It is 3,000 feet above sea level. It's on the top of a mountain. Now, we don't consider mountains of 3,000 feet mountains at all. We consider them hills. But in western Pennsylvania, if you go up a 2,500-foot hill, that's a mountain. So that's what you call the Appalachians or the Laurel Highlands or wherever. My native stomping grounds. Not these 7, 10, 12,000-foot peaks. These are giants. But they are real mountains. 
And so everybody from the west who goes back east and sees the Shenandoah Valley or some of these other rolling hills, they don't call them mountains. They call them just, you know, pimples on the, on the plains. Okay. <clears throat> Hebron is up in the heights, as I say. So it's another reason that uh, David uh, goes up to Hebron. It is a kind of queen city of the, of the uh, tribe of Judah. Now, we have a bracket pattern here in verses 1 to 3. You will notice the last word in verse 1. What is the last word in verse 3? Hebron and Hebron. All right, we draw a bracket around verse 1 and verse 3 in terms of the location Hebron. Then, in verse 2, notice, first name is David, followed by a verb. He went up. And then a listing of persons, his two wives, and they are named there. Verse 3, the first name is David, followed by a verb. He brought up, and then the persons, namely his men. So we have a parallel, symmetrical outline of Hebron, David plus verb plus person, David plus verb plus person, and then Hebron again. Very symmetrical pattern in these opening three verses, keep in mind the issue of symmetries in this second chapter. Parallel symmetries, extremely important for the drama and the theology of the narratives. Now, the mention of Abigail there in verse 2 recalls her comment in 1 Samuel 25, verse 29, that David's life is bundled with the living God and emphasizes by way of reminiscence, though it's not expressed, this continuing expression or understanding or undercurrent of the union that David has with God, of whom he has inquired reciprocally in verse 1. So even Abigail's name here reminds us of the union that David has with the living God, something she confessed when she first came to him. Now, why record the names of the wives and the men? No, no men are named, but the men and their households are listed. Why list them? Why even mention this? Why bracket it around the location of Hebron? Because the shift in the era, in the history of redemption, which has dawned, With David being the uncontested king, this new beginning touches them. They are drawn into the circle of David's kingdom. They are drawn into the circle of the newness of the era that David brings. They have been wandering with David and his men. They have been separated from the land of Israel for a year and a quarter. They have been kidnapped in terror and in fear for their lives. All of that is now behind them as David brings them up to Hebron to settle them in peace and contentment and serenity and security. Notice how the Davidic kingdom is folding into its benevolence, into its graciousness, into its character, even those who are attached to the king. They benefit from the blessings of the era with which he is blessed. 
And so they are folded in to the bracket there in verses 1 and 3. But there's a woman missing. There's a wife missing. Who is not here? Michael is not here. Why is she not here? Because she's been given to another. That is correct. But what about these women? These women were going to be mentioned in the next chapter, in chapter 3. These are fertile myrtles. These are women who will bear children. And so they are listed. Okay? But Michael? Barren. Correct. We won't learn that until chapter 6, but our narrator is not listing her here, not only because she is not it doesn't belong to David now. She's been given to another. But by the fact that she is barren and there's an emphatic staccato on the line of Saul, no successor. The line of Saul dies. She's absent from the narrative. Ben? Wasn't there any significance to the fact that this is the second time that I see that Abigail was listed as Naples' wife? The significance is it attaches her to her... Uh, appearance in First Samuel 25, that she is identified with him. In, in other words, it's a kind of uh, ID card. She's no longer his wife. She was his wife. But that associates her with him and then brings up the story of, you know, brings to mind that story in which uh, she placates David and also commends David uh, for the character of his spiritual life. All right, now the next subunit is verses 4 to 7, which is distinguished by a change of subject. David is not the subject of this. Uh, They told, the men of Judah came and anointed David over Israel. So the men of Hebron have taken the initiative to anoint David as king over the house of Judah. David continues in this subunit by dealing with the men of Jabesh-Gilead. For they, that is his men, tell him that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had buried Saul. Once again, David did not know. Even as in the first chapter, he did not know how Saul had died. So here he is informed by his men that the uh, inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead had buried uh, Saul. And consequently, uh, David sends messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead in verse 5. All right, now Jabesh is in Gilead. Where is Gilead? Cisjordan or Transjordan? Where is Gilead? Cisjordan or Transjordan? What do I mean by Cisjordan and Transjordan? East and west. Which is east and which is west? Transjordan is east. That means Cisjordan is west. All right. East of the Jordan is the Transjordan. West of the Jordan is the Cisjordan. C-I-S. Cisjordan. Okay. Those are actually uh, Latin prefixes or Latin prepositions. Uh, But they're used here to indicate geographical uh, dimensions or directions. All right, so uh, where is Gilead? Cis or trans? Trans. 
You see your map? It's trans. It's on the east side. All right. Now, where is Ishbosheth's capital? Verse 8. I heard somebody say it, I think. Mahanaim. Mahanaim. Okay. Ishbosheth's capital is Mahanaim. Where does your map put Mahanaim? Cisjordan or Transjordan? Transjordan on the east side. So David is sending messengers across the Jordan into the territory of Ishbosheth to the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. What is he up to? Very good. Excellent. What he's done is he's he has sent a friendly political embassy into the territory of his enemy, and he has dealt with someone who dealt kindly with Saul and is going to commend them for that in order that they might think well of him as having been anointed king over Israel on Saul's death. Not Ishbosheth. David isn't a stupid politician. He is taking advantage of an attempt to say thank you to a group of people, even in enemy territory, and to do it in such a gracious way that he will, I like Kay's word, ingratiate himself to them and bind them to himself, potentially. All right, now that's not the only reason he does it. This is not only a political move. That's the remote reason, the more proximate reason. That's the more, that's the far away reason. The remote reason is the political reason with the proximate reason. That is the reason that's that close at hand, nearer at hand. What's that reason? He's saying thank you, isn't he? Yes, he's saying thank you. He's saying thank you to those who have done good or shown kindness to Saul, even as Saul had shown kindness to them in rescuing them from Nahash the Ammonite in 1 Samuel 11. All right, now there's a little structure here in verse 5, 6, and 7 that I want you to note. In verse 5, David says, May you be blessed of the Lord. And then notice he follows that with a causal particle, because... In other words, may you be blessed of the Lord. Why? Because. Because why? You have shown hesed. Now here is this Hebrew word that we've seen before. And here it pops up again. It's a very important Hebrew word. It means kindness, love, mercy. You have shown kindness or loyalty and mercy to Saul, your Lord. All right, verse 5. May you be blessed of the Lord, causal particle, because, because why you have shown hesed. Verse 6, may you be blessed of the Lord. There it is again. May the Lord, may the Lord show you loving kindness. Okay, uh, may the Lord show you hesed, because, once again, the causal particle, you have done this thing. And I will show you 
hesed. I will show you goodness. Notice here, David has gone a step beyond. May God show you hesed, verse 5, because of your kindness. Now I will show you kindness because you have shown kindness. God's hesed, David reflecting the hesed of God because of the kindness, the hesed of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. This is a marvelous demonstration of the causal relationship that when God's kindness comes to the heart, the heart shows kindness in response. It responds that way. And so the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead are at least presumptuously those who have had the hesed of God shed abroad in their hearts, and that's the reason they went to rescue Saul's body. David recognizes it because he's had the hesed of God shed abroad in his heart, and he wants to reciprocate that hesed with his own hesed in response to them. This is the fruit, then, of the loving kindness and the mercy of God's own grace at work in the heart of David and the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. Now, the last unit... I should comment on verse 7, where he says, uh, Now be valiant and strong, for Saul is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Here is that uh, ingratiating, think of me when you think of uh, God's kindness, when you think of uh, the kingdom that has now arisen in Judah. So he uh, kind of does puts in a little campaign uh, plug for himself here. Uh, as he uh, winds up his dealings with the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. I don't want to be crass about that, but uh, he is, once again, ingratiating himself to them. Now, the last unit in his opening 11 verses, verses 8 to 11, <clears throat> the elevation of Ishbosheth as king in the Transjordanian region at Mahanaim in Gilead. The contrast between verses 8 to 11 and verses 1 to 4 is again stark. There is a symmetry, but there is a symmetry which is also contrastive. David, you'll notice, is anointed at Hebron, verse 4. Ishbosheth is installed at Mahanaim. So the chief actors in this opening drama are David and Ishbosheth. Correct? The chief actors in this drama are David and Ishbosheth. Marge? What about Abner? All right. Now you have to know your Hebrew verbs in order to pick up the significance of Abner's role here. Notice in verse 8, Abner brought him over to Mahanaim. And in verse 9, he made him king over Gilead. Now, the Hebrew verb here is a hifil. The hifil of the Hebrew verb system is the causative, the causative verb. So we should render these verbs that Abner caused Ishbosheth to be brought over to Mahanaim, and he caused him to become king over Gilead. Who is pulling the strings? Abner is pulling the strings. 
He is causing Ishbosheth to be brought over. He is causing him to be made king. Abner is the kingmaker, and Ishbosheth is his puppet. Exactly right. The main characters here are not David and Ishbosheth. The main character of this drama, David and Abner. Abner is the power behind Ishbosheth, as the Hebrew verbs make very clear. All right, now, what about Abner? Who is he? Anyone? He is the commander of Saul's army. He is also, he may be his cousin or his uncle, depending upon how you read 1 Samuel 14.50. It's a little ambiguous, but in any rate, he is a relative of Saul. He may have been his uncle. He may have been a cousin. What is Abner doing here in verse 8 and following? Duh, he's making Ishbosheth king. Yes, that's right. But what is he really up to? What is he doing? He is rejecting the Lord's anointed, is he not? He is refusing to acknowledge that David is the anointed of the Lord King in Hebron. He is setting up a competitive kingdom in the Transjordanian region of Gilead with a puppet. Abner is a kingmaker and a power player. Why Mahanaim? Why Gilead across the Jordan? Why Transjordanian Mahanaim? Far away from Philistine territory. Remember, the Philistines have occupied north-central Palestine with the, the victory on Mount Gilboa in the Valley of Jezreel. And so the only safe place... For Abner to take Ishbosheth is across the Jordan into the region of Gilead where he won't be bothered by David or by the Philistines. All right, notice what our narrator has done. He has juxtaposed what is happening at Ziglag and Hebron in verses 1 to 4 with what is happening in Gilead and Mahanaim in verses 8 to 11. He is contrasting these two dramatic uh, uh, tales, these narratives that are unfolding. And in verse 11, he duplicates a passage which he will repeat in 2 Samuel 5, 5. Ishbosheth rules for two years. But he's got lots of territory. Verse 9, Gilead, the Asherites. Nobody knows where the Asherites are. That's a guest, Jezreel, Ephraim, Benjamin, over all Israel. Now, this is probably what Abner proclaimed him. It doesn't mean he actually controlled all that territory that the Philistines occupied. Uh, Abner was just saying, he's the king of all Israel. David's only got Judah. Okay? In other words, he's presuming upon Ishbosheth's. Uh, 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 popularity. So, Ishbosheth has lots of territory, but he's got a little bit of time. He's only got two years. David? David's only got a little bit of territory. He's only got the tribe of Judah, but he's got lots of time. Seven and a half years. Contrast 
between the two of them in terms of their duration and uh, their apparent uh, uh, exercise of authority. All right, summing up then this uh, portion of uh, chapter 2, you notice that we have the present life of David in verses 1 to 4 at Hebron. We have the present life of Ishbosheth in verses 8 to 11. And sandwiched in between is the past death of Saul. Life present, David in Hebron, first four verses. Life present, Ishbosheth and Abner in Gilead, present time, sandwiching life past, Saul buried by the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. It is a small chiasm, but nonetheless, it sandwiches the events of Saul's final career with David's ongoing and developing story and provides a link to the Saulide, namely Ishbosheth, who also uh, is uh, in, in the ongoing drama. All right, now to verses uh, 12 and following. We've had the symmetry of David in one place and Abner and Ishbosheth in another. Now we have the symmetry of a stalemate, which is fractured or ruptured by the symmetry of a confrontation. Notice a number of things about this section, 12 and 13 to begin with. There is a formula in verse 12, X the son of Y, Abner the son of Ner. Verse 13, X the son of Y, Joab the son of Zeruiah. A symmetrical formula identifying the prominent dramatis personic, persons of the drama. Now, Joab is called the son of Zeruiah. Who is Zeruiah? David's sister, First Chronicles 2.16. That makes Joab the nephew of David. Notice who is sandwiched between Abner and Joab. Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is squeezed, squeezed between the two military figures who are actually the power players in his own story. Now, the second thing you'll note is the deployment, the symmetry of deployment. Verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, went out. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out. Right? The symmetrical deployment. Both groups move out. Also, notice the symmetry of personnel. Verse 12, the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. Verse 13, the servants of David. Symmetrical deployment, symmetrical personnel. Symmetrical formula of characters, symmetrical deployment, symmetrical personnel, and now destination. They go to the pool of Gabeon. One on one side of the pool and the other on the other side. They go to the same pool, symmetrical destination. David's servants go to the pool of Gibeon. Abner's servants go to the pool of Gibeon. Perfect symmetry. 
And at the pool of Gibeon, they sit down, one on either side of the pool, and what do they do? They look at their mirror reflection in the pool of water, once again, perfect symmetrical reflection. Second, verse 13, one on one side, the other on the other. Literally in the Hebrew, one by the pool from here, one by the pool from here. Exact Hebrew duplication, the symmetry of their disposition, how they are disposed as they sit staring across this pool at one another. A standoff. What is true of the two rival kings is true of the two rival commanders in their armies. Standoff, symmetrical stalemate. Staring across a pool at one another as the pool mirrors their symmetrical division and hostility. House of David over against the house of Saul. King David in Hebron, King Ishbosheth in Mahanaim. General Joab, General Abner. The servants of David, the servants of Ishbosheth. The left side of the pool of Gibeon, right side of the pool of Gibeon. Perfect symmetry. Get the picture? Your narrator wants you to get the picture. Because he wants you to ask a question. Does the symmetry envelop Joab? Is he a duplicate reflection of Abner? Ah. Is he a kingmaker? Is he an opportunist? Is he a political power broker? Is he positioned underneath his sovereign, but one who in fact controls his sovereign? This is our introduction to Joab. It will not be our last occasion to reflect upon Joab, and our narrator brings him in to this narrative of perfect symmetry where he is the alter ego of Abner, and he does so in order to prod us to think. Abner, crass military opportunist, is Joab a crass military opportunist? Abner has a king in his pocket. Does Joab have a king in his pocket? The intense antipathy between Joab and Abner, which is symmetrically reflected and mirrored here perfectly. Is it a reflection of the fact that they know one another to be of the very same mind? They are both political manipulators and power brokers. And that's the reason they glare at one another across that pool. Who is going to be the king of the hill when this is over? Now, it is the first narrative suggestion, and it comes out of the structural symmetry of the relationship between Abner and Joab in this sense. It is the first narrative suggestion that our author makes that Joab may always be driven by a hidden agenda. Always. And so let us keep in mind that whenever Joab may act in the future, Joab may be acting not because he is a devoted worshiper of the Lord God, but because he is a perfectly skilled politician with an army. 
Let's keep that in mind as an open question. And not think that Joab is this dutiful, honorable general of King David. All right, the cemetery returns now in verse 14. You will notice that Abner and Joab enter into a dialogue, a symmetrical give and take in terms of uh, speech. The 14th verse in some translations uh, has Joab saying, let the young man arise and play. Other translations have hold a contest or make sport. This isn't playing. This is a deadly game. Symmetry in verse 15. 12 verses 12. Why 12? Anita? 12 tribes of Israel. Exactly. This contest, of course, is going to settle the claim to the whole of Israel. All 12 tribes. So they select 12 individuals. Symmetry in verse 16. Hand on head, hand on head. Fall down, fall down. And fall down means fall down dead. They kill one another. 12 on 12. Perfect symmetry. Reminds you of Greek and Roman uh, combat champions, which they choose out a champion to fight to the death. Somewhat like we suggested maybe in the background of David and Goliath. All right, combat by representatives ends in a draw. Now verse 17. The stalemate continues. Now verse 17. Civil war breaks out. Civil war breaks out. Abner and Joab go to war against one another. The battle of Gibeon leads to the death of 20 on Joab's side and 360 on Abner's side as verses 30 and 31 enumerate. The antithesis between the two sides in this drama, the antagonism between these two armies, the hostility between the two commanders is a mirror parallel in Abner and Joab's character. Character of Abner reflected in Joab. Character of Joab reflected in Abner. The symmetry composed in this narrative unit, verses 12 to 17, is a narrative characterization of two very similar figures. Figures which are mirror images of one another. And therefore, I am suggesting that this story is not incidental to the ongoing drama of David's career. Joab and Abner facing off here is the beginning of a characterization of both of them. Our narrator is a master in using drama in order to talk about personal character. All right, now what is the relationship of verse 18 to verse 17? Verse 17 was the outbreak of the Civil War. Verse 18 is one incident in that outbreak. So this is a flashback. From 18 on to the end of the chapter, we have an incident in this war that erupts in verse 16. Verse 17, rather. In verse 18, we meet another character for the first time. We meet Asahel. 
but we meet Asahel for a short time. Notice the bracket in this unit. Verse 19, the word pursued. Verse 24, the word pursued. And how does Asahel pursue? Like a gazelle, swiftly. Verse 19, how does Asahel pursue? With an obsession, with persistence, with stubborn persistence. He is swift, swift indeed, swift to his own death, stubbornly persistent in pursuit of his own demise. Notice the symmetry again, the narrative symmetry in verses 19 to 23. Asahel pursues, verse 19, Abner turns and speaks, verse 20. Asahel pursues, verse 21. Abner speaks, probably turning again, verse 22. Asahel refuses and pursues, verse 23a. Abner stops Asahel, verse 23b through d. Also, the symmetry between verse 21 and verse 23. He was not willing to give up the pursuit. Verse 23, he refused to stop the pursuit. And why? Because of verse 20. I, notice the emphatic I. It is I. You are my prize, Abner. It is ego which is driving Asahel after Abner. Verse 22, what type of questions do we have here? What kind of questions does Abner pose? These are rhetorical questions. In other words, the answer is already given in the asking of the question. Abner, uh, 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 sorry, Joab is not, Abner is not entering into a uh, discourse with Asahel. He is just simply stating the obvious. And Asahel's ignominious death skewered by running pell-mell into Abner's spear from behind. Is the translation of the New American Standard correct? The butt end of, As- of Abner's spear. Or did Abner turn and Asahel got the point? Impaled through the belly. Regardless, the swift-footed warrior runs into death by the speed of his own swift feet. He doesn't even get his own weapon out. And if the insult of running himself into the spear of his opponent were not insult enough, he lies in his own blood to become a spectacle to all who pass by in verse 23. Did Abner turn to face Asahel, or did he just fix his spear when he felt Abner breathing down his neck and not even turn to face the foolish, stubborn adversary? Surely that posture would have been an added insult. You get the picture? Asahel breathing down his neck, and Abner simply fixes his spear in such a way that he runs into the butt end of it so hard that it pierces and impales him through the belly and out the back. Abner doesn't even turn to look at him. He doesn't even look his enemy in the eye. He just lets him run into it from behind. Drops him in a pool of blood and goes on without even turning. I like the NASB translation. I like it because it adds the dimension of the insult to the death 
of Asahel to the narrative. Now, I may be wrong about that, and I can't prove it, but I like the little suggestion that he just runs pell-mell right into the end of that spear, and Abner doesn't even turn to look at him. Anita? Um, a suggestion that the butt end of a spear might be pointed so it could be planted in the ground uh, at the point end. Uh, possibly, uh, but not necessarily. Um, as fast as he's running, uh, you know, he could have impaled himself on a, a good uh, round spear with a cut-off uh, butt end. No problem. Just going too fast. But... If there's a point on it, he gets the point even more poignantly. Now, the conclusion of this narrative is also marked off by a couple of delimiters. Verse 24, compared to verse 32. What markers do you see there? Verse 24 compared with verse 32. It is night in 32. The sun is going down in 24, but what's happening in 32? Daybreak. Sun is rising. Notice sunset and sunrise. Okay, there's a symmetry then of time. Okay, sunrise, sunset. There's another symmetry. There's a symmetry of space. Notice verse 24, Joab and Abishai on a hill. Verse 25, the sons of Benjamin with Abner on another hill. Reprising the stalemate opposition of the two groups at the pool of Gabeon. Now they're on a hill looking at one another across the valley. They were opposite one another, mirrored in a pool in verse 13. But the chase continues in verse 24. Now Asahel's brothers are after Abner. And now Joab and Abner get into a dialogue, verses 26 and 27. Abner raises three rhetorical questions in verse 26. Shall the sword devour forever? Obviously, no. Do you not know there will be a bitter end? Obviously, there will. How long will you refrain from giving the cease order? Joab also has three lines, not three rhetorical questions, but three lines. As God lives, had you not spoken, surely the troops would have quit. His comment there means that had he not spoken, the troops would have quit. Uh, by daybreak, but as it is, they potentially will go on. Joab is obsessed like Asahel. He wants Abner. But he blows the ram's horn in verse 28 and stops the pursuit. Why? Why did he stop what his brother had begun? 
There may be a military reason. Notice verse 25. Abner is reinforced by the sons of Benjamin, and they become one band standing on the top of the hill. In other words, Joab and Abishai may be outnumbered, and so he blows the horn to stop the pursuit. The final reason is that Abner may have shamed him. Do you not know that the end will be bitter? And Joab's conscience strikes him so that he is shamed by Abner's comment and leaves off pursuing so that he won't lose any, there won't be any more blood shed on that day. Now, I'm not offering a, a full a dogmatic answer to those suggestions as to why they stop. But when they stop, both of the armies and their commanders march through the night. There's the symmetry one more time. And finally, both of them come to their own capitals in the following morning. Verse 29, parallel to verse 32. As we move through this chapter... Our narrator is lining up symmetrical patterns between Abner and Joab. And he is doing that in order to characterize, through this narrative symmetry, these individuals in this drama. Abner and Joab are once again going to encounter one another. Don't forget this pattern of symmetry that you have seen in chapter 2. This is not an incidental story or, shall we say, a peculiar story of a weird battle between 12 and 12 at a pool which leads to a civil war and the tragic death of Asahel and a blood feud between Abner and Joab. There is more here than that. Our narrator wants you to look more deeply And he sets up the symmetries in order to draw you into that question. Do you have any questions? Okay. This is not so great, but anyway, having 12 men and 12 men as a representative fight, that didn't work. No, it did not. Uh, Having 12 and 12 did not succeed in settling the feud. That is correct. It only led to a breakout of a larger, uh, 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 larger war, larger battle. The fact that they all fell dead simply said the symmetry didn't work. Okay. Nobody got the upper hand, but they are determined to get the upper hand on one another and thus the war. Any other comments or questions? Anita? Does that symmetry of the 12 and 12 have anything to do with God's commands to Israelites not to be killing each other? And therefore, that's one of God's commands. No, they've already, they've already determined that they're actually going to go to battle with one another. They're going to fight 12 over 12. They've chosen these 12 as representatives of their side of claiming all Israel. So having settled that matter, that they're going to go to war with one another on the basis of these 12 representative champions, uh, they go to it, and uh, they, they all kill one another in the process. 
Now, it is a violation of going to war with your brother in that sense, but they're beyond that now. Forget going to war with your brother. We want this nation, one side or the other. All right, then I won't see you next week. Happy Thanksgiving.